The first reading this evening is the beginning of the book of Malachi, which is on page 960, 960 in the Church Bibles. Page 960, chapter 1 of Malachi. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled. And of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading this evening is 12 pages further on, on page 972. Page 972, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, Before we look at this passage, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we're conscious that often your word packs a punch, and some of these words are quite challenging for us this evening, so we pray that we'd come to you and to your word with open ears and hearts that are willing to follow you, and that your word so written so long ago would be proved to be as relevant as ever for us today, and we ask it for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome to Malachi. Uh, We're on page 960. It's pronounced Malachi, not Malachi, as somebody once (laughs) uh, pronounced him. He's the last book in the Old Testament, and he's a little book, only four short chapters, tucked right away at the end of the Old Testament, and along with many of the other minor prophets, often ignored. But uh, we don't know very much about Malachi, We don't actually know his name. You'll see in chapter 1, verse 1, that Malachi actually means messenger. So he was probably called something else. But we do know that he's writing about 80 years after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon and 50 years after the rebuilding of the temple. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what's the relevance for this book? Written 2,500 years ago, by someone we know very little about. Well, I think there are a couple of good reasons for reading this great little prophet on a bank holiday weekend in 21st century London. First, this is a message from God. Chapter 1, verse 1, the opening words of the book say, an oracle. And that literally means a burden brought through Malachi, God's messenger. He's he's he's. It's as if God has spoken to him and it weighs on him so heavily he has to pass it on. You know that sort of feeling when someone said something to you and you've got to pass it on to someone else? You don't really rest until you've done so, whether it's a good message or an uncomfortable message. And in this case, it's not an easy message to deliver. But God is speaking through his word. And as uh, Charles reminded us right at the beginning of the service, all scripture is inspired by God and all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that's the first good reason for reading Malachi. Second, 
But although this is an ancient prophecy written to, frankly, a very, very different culture, Malachi's world actually has a number of similar parallels with our world. First, he's speaking during a time of economic recession. They're recently back from exile and money was tight and Malachi has things to say about giving money. Second, it was a time of social and moral unrest and Malachi has things to say about fraud and violence and corruption and adultery and divorce. It was also a time of spiritual decline. Although the Jews had recently returned from exile, the new temple was nothing like as grand as the old temple built by Solomon. Attendances were in decline, worship was slovenly. And as we'll see today, Malachi has some things to say about worship. It was also a time of skepticism. The book of Malachi is actually based around eight questions that the people ask of God. Now, very often, questions are a good thing, particularly if we're seeking to find answers. So um, the Alpha Course, its logo is famously a great big question mark, and we encourage people to come and ask their questions if they want to find out answers. But in Malachi's case, questions here are not just skeptical, they're often cynical. And they reveal a hostility towards God and a defiance of his word. So economic recession, social and moral unrest, spiritual decline, and cynicism. This is surely a book for our times. And chapter 1, verse 1, it's a message from God. So let's dive in. And Malachi, chapter 1, has two challenges for his hearers. First, don't forget that God loves you. That's verses 2 to 5. And second, don't forget that God is great. Verses 6 to 14. Because we very easily forget. First, don't forget that God loves you. And Matthew, uh, sorry, Malachi begins his prophecy with this great declaration in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, preachers love preaching about the love of God. There's nothing I enjoy more than preaching about grace and God's mercy and his unfailing love and his covenant goodness towards us. And if I want my hearers to hear one thing as they leave the church and go away with one thing, I want them to go away knowing that God loves them. Especially in the context of tough times. And this book is actually a book full of warning and judgment. And Malachi begins by talking of God's love because he's going to go on to talk about God's discipline. Now, when a loving parent has to discipline their child, they always want their child to know that the bottom line is that they're loved. And however much the child leaves the room with a tail proverbially between the legs, they must know that they're loved. Discipline comes from a warm heart, from a loving heart, 
And God says in verse 2, I have loved you. But he immediately anticipates the reply, how? How have you loved us? You see, the Israelites had experienced disappointment. Returning home from exile had been tougher than they'd expected. And disappointment had turned into doubt. And God comes out with this great declaration of love for his people. And all they can say is, pull the other one, God. I have loved you, says the Lord. And they say, yeah, right. How? Well, look at how God responds to their challenge in verses 2 and 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. I don't know about you, but that had me scratching my head for a little bit. (laughs) How does that answer the question, uh, how, how does God love us? Well, God is basically saying here, look at history. He's saying, I have chosen Jacob and his 12 sons who became Israel. I've chosen Jacob and not Esau. He could have chosen the elder brother Esau and the nation that was descended from him, the Edomites. But no, he chose Israel. And the point here is that God's love is an electing love. He chooses. It's a love that chooses. Not because in any way are God's people better than other, anyone else, but because God is gracious. This is how God explains his love for his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He's basically saying, I love you because I love you. And he's chosen them because he loves them. Some people will struggle with this reference to hating Esau. I think the way to see it is it's, it's a contrast to his love for Jacob and his people Israel. And God often, uh, the Bible often uses these contrasts of love and hate just to show how great his love is. So in the New Testament, Jesus says that we must hate our parents. We can't follow Jesus unless we hate our parents. Well, of course, there's plenty else in the Bible that says we should love our parents and honor our parents. It's not saying we should be, uh, have a sort of antipathy towards our parents. It's saying that compared to our love for God, our love for anyone else, and perhaps the, most, the closest relationship of all with our parents, is nothing compared to our love for God. Our love for God must be so great. And I think he's saying a similar sort of thing here with, with Jacob. My love for Jacob and his people, God's people, is so great 
and for the Israelites there to look back at this moment of love, loving choice by God, choosing Jacob. And God saved his people through famine and brought them out of slavery and rescued them in the great exodus. Of course, for the Christian, the Christian looks back to a far greater rescue in Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. How have you loved us, they say? How have you loved us? We might say. It's a question with a very contemporary ring. How often have we heard people say, how can you possibly love God when dot, 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 and I'll leave you to fill in the dots. How can you possibly love God in the face of suffering, unemployment, family issues? Well, just look at the state of the world. Just look at the news. How can you possibly believe that God loves you? Now, that's a question we expect from an unbeliever. But Christians, surprisingly, often ask this question as well. How, God, have you loved us? You know, things don't quite work out as we, we'd hoped. Perhaps the children don't turn out as we'd hoped. Or my job isn't quite as fulfilling as I'd hoped. Or family issues, relationships. And Malachi would say to us, as he says to the Israelites, look back into history. Read your Bible if you're in any doubt that God loves you. Look back to the cross. God showed his covenant love to us supremely by dying for you and for me. And God says to us today, I have loved you. If you go out of the church with just one thing in your ears, Hear this, God says, I have loved you. And as Paul spells it out to the Romans, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? But as well as looking back at history, God also says, look around you, verses four and five. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. God is not only the God of Israel. He's the God of all nations. I don't know if you notice as Andrew read the chapter, the title used for God eight times in one chapter is the Lord Almighty. Literally, the Lord of the armies. God is the sovereign Lord. He is in control. He is almighty. Look around you, says Malachi, and look at the destruction of Edom. God is in control. You may think these Edomites who are historic long-term historic enemies of the Israelites. You may think they're a nuisance. God says, it's all right. I've got it under control. Look around you, he might say to us today. Look at the collapse of communism in the 1990s. Something that no one would have guessed a few years before. 
Look at the collapse of apartheid in South Africa. Who would have guessed that would happen? Look at the remarkable growth of the Christian church in some of the most surprising parts of the world. And just on an individual basis, look at the remarkable ways in which God opens the blind eyes of unbelievers, perhaps our own eyes, sometime in the past. Isn't that amazing? I was in another church last Sunday morning, and it was communion. And this girl rather reluctantly came forward to take communion. And uh, as I went to give her a piece of bread, she said, I won't take the bread because I'm a Muslim. But would you please pray for me? I want to know Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? And I have to confess, it slightly took me by surprise. Because, of course, you know, we live in London and we hear the news and we're surrounded by Muslims. And the sort of perception is, well, of course, they won't want anything to do with us. Not a bit of it. God is shining his light in some of the most unlikely places. Look around you, God says, if you want to know how I've loved you. God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, he is in control. And one day he will work out all his glorious purposes. Even if there are times when we feel like saying, how have you loved us? He says to us, don't forget, God loves you. Second, don't forget that God is great. Verses 6 to 14. Just look at verse 6 for a moment. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You, def you place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you, when you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And so he goes on. Basically, God is saying, I have loved you and therefore you should honor me. And yet, you despise me. Well, how do we despise him? We despise God by not respecting him, by giving him less honor than we do to other people. And Malachi outlines four areas where this is seen. First, it's seen in not keeping the law. Verse 7, they were offering defiled food on the altar. Now, that may seem a small thing to us as we look back on Old Testament sacrificial law. But Leviticus chapter 22 is very clear that an animal offered for sacrifice had to be perfect, without defect. And they were dishonoring God by not keeping this very clear command. Perhaps we can do the same. We may think, well, it's only a small law. And we justify our behavior by saying, well, it's only a small thing. Perhaps failing to declare something on our income tax return. Or where we tell white lies because it's convenient, really. We wouldn't want to hurt someone's feelings if we told the truth. Or you know, we're late for a meeting, so we 
we blame the terrible traffic. And actually, it's my own inefficiency that means I'm late. The second way they dishonored God's name was by not offering God the best. Verse 8, giving God a crippled or diseased animal was a symptom of a, a casual attitude to God. And again, we can show the same casual attitude. You know, well, I'll, I'll go to church if I'm not too tired, or if it fits my weekend plans, but maybe other things will come first. I'll go to the home group when my evening class is over in the spring. I'll be able to give more to God's work when I've paid off my mortgage in 25 years' time. Or if I move into cheaper accommodation, which I'm sure I won't do. Not giving God the best. This is the challenge. It might be time, it might be money, it might be our talents, it might be our energy. This is what Malachi is criticizing God's people for here. The third way they dishonored God's name is by not maintaining their spiritual zeal in verses 12 and 13. You profane God's name by saying, verse 12, by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously. What a burden. What a bore. It's a terrible thing when worship becomes a chore and when Christian service becomes jaded or cynical and we only keep on turning up out of habit and serving out of grim duty and we develop a martyr complex about Christian activity. I suppose I'd better do it or no one else will. And then the vicar will be on my back. And we've lost our joy. The fourth way they dishonored God's name was by not keeping their promises. Verse 14. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. They promised to do one thing for God, but actually did another. God has a name for someone who does this. Verse 14, cheat. It's the same principle in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, who said they were going to give things to God, but didn't. Malachi is referring to worship and serving and making sacrifices for God and Throughout this section, he's saying, you're giving less than your best. Now, you, uh, my heart slightly sank when I saw that I was giving this sermon. And I have to say, I've, um, I've had a week of wrestling with this passage and its application in my life. You've only had uh, the length of this sermon to wrestle with it. <laughs> I've had a whole week thinking about... Uh, how I might not be giving the best. And of course, it'll be different for each one of us. And I'm certainly not going to point the finger at any individual. Of course not. But I've certainly been convicted myself to reconsider my financial giving to God's work. Am I giving the first fruits or the leftovers 
or what I think I can afford? Am I reckless in my giving as a grateful thank you to God for his goodness to me? I've been convicted about the amount of time I spend in personal Bible reading and prayer. I've been convicted about being thoroughly committed to God's work. It's very easy when you've got one of these around your neck to say, well, it's the job. You know, and I sort of do the job. I've been thinking about the heart. Been convicted about how carefully I prepare for some things. You know, when you've been around the block a few times, as I have, it's tempting to think, well, I've done this before, you know not prepare as thoroughly perhaps as I could. These are some of the things I've been wrestling with. It'll be different for you, maybe. But God doesn't want us just to give enough. He wants our best. These are solemn words. God says, I have loved you and therefore you should honor me and yet you despise me. So what should we do? Well, I've got three little clues for us, or rather Malachi has three little clues for us by way of conclusion. The first is pray earnestly. Verse 9, now implore God to be gracious to us. Implore is a strong word. It doesn't just mean pray. It doesn't mean ask God. It means plead with God. As it were, get down on your knees and really mean business with God. It doesn't mean just mumbling a confession. It's so easy just to mumble the words, isn't it? And it means getting down on our knees, being serious with God, pleading for his grace and mercy. And isn't it wonderful? Verse 9 reminds us that God is gracious. It's not too late to confess a casual approach to God. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He longs not only to forgive, but to give us a fresh start. So let's pray to him earnestly. Second, act decisively. Verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. God is saying it. If only there was someone here who'd stop the rot. Someone who'd actually shut the temple doors and say, what's going on is dishonoring to God. Enough is enough. This is a call to action. Shut the doors, put out the fires, act decisively. And maybe God has putting something on our hearts and our lives. Maybe you'll just want to go away and think about this, but is there one something that God is calling you either to stop doing or to start doing. To give of our best is what God wants us to do. There's a challenging statement there in verse 8, isn't there? I like it. Try offering them to your governor. You know, we've offered uh, crippled and diseased animals to God. Try try offering those to your governor. Try turning up late to work. What does your governor think of that? Pull a sickie with your governor. What do you think of that? Push off at lunchtime. What's your governor think of that? 
Well, we wouldn't do it at work, he says. You wouldn't do it for your earthly boss. What about the sovereign Lord, the Lord Almighty, the gracious God who's rescued us? Doesn't he deserve a bit more respect? Act decisively. You wouldn't do it for your boss, so don't try and get away with it with God, he's saying. Act decisively. And third, worship worthily. Verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. He's saying all around the world, there are people who are praising God properly. But you Israelites, verse 12, you profane it. God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world from the rising to the setting of the sun. He says, my name will be great. In every place, pure offerings will be brought to my name. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He is the Lord Almighty. He is to be worshipped worthily. So don't forget, God loves you. And he loves us enough to rebuke us. Someone said he, he accepts us as we are, but he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay as we are. So let's not show contempt for him. Let's not treat him lightly or be casual in his presence. Don't forget God loves you, and don't forget that God is great. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the great king, verse 14. So let's pray earnestly, let's act decisively, and let's worship worthily. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. I have loved you, says the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we ask for your forgiveness when we perhaps question your love and goodness towards us. When even the most cursory glance at your word will, would show how much you have loved us in Christ. And we confess that we don't always treat you with the honor and respect that you deserve. And we ask for your forgiveness and we ask too for the willingness to change. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored in the way we live our lives. So that from the rising to the setting of the sun, your name would be great. And we pray that that would begin in our lives. And we ask it for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.